0: Uh, okay, so let me just take care of a couple of quick things. So if you need if you need a handout, I got a handout. It's you know it's a bunch of staple pages that are out there on the uh, connections counter. Uh, however, tonight's lesson number three, um, what's in that packet of of notes is no longer valid. I um, was looking at it this morning and realized there's a huge section missing in the notes. So you wouldn't know where I was at if I didn't get... So I've updated them. There's new ones out there, single sheets, if you want to grab one, or if somebody could grab them and pass them out, that would be great. Uh, It'll make a whole lot more sense to you if you have the right handout. Um, So that takes care of those two things, and um, we'll go from there. So... um, and I I tried to change my background and uh, the uh, highlighting for what goes in your blanks and everything so that you can read them. Hopefully, they'll be a little bit easier on your eyes. Uh, so, let us just start with this. If you turn over to the to the book of Acts, chapter 17, I just want to mention a couple of verses, one verse in particular, Acts, chapter 17, and verse uh, 2 Um I'm going to mention other verses as a prelude to this whole study. But in Acts chapter 17 and verse 2, Paul is preaching. or are getting ready to preach. Every time he goes into something, he says in verse 2, it says, and when Paul, Paul, as his was his manner uh, was, he went in unto them, into the synagogue that was mentioned in verse 1. He went into the synagogue, and he three days he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. And that word reason." Uh, is the same word? that you find very similar word as you find in First Peter chapter three verse fifteen? Uh, so turn over there. Brian mentioned that in his prayer. First, um, First Peter three fifteen. Let me get to it. There he says, but Peter writes, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is with you, that is in you, with meekness and fear. And that phrase, "to give an answer," is the word apologia in Greek. And we talked about this at length last week, and uh, had some diagrams to help you track down the word. But um, the word diagram, uh, the word um, apologia, is that is, that, is the is the, this is the phrase to give an answer. And that's actually what apologetics is, is all about it's about giving an answer of the faith that lieth within you and um, and so and then there's one other verse that I want to mention that's in the notes and it's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. it says, "In whom ye also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom afterward that you believed you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and we talked about that as let me get to my right page I'm still Fumbling around up here. Here we go. Okay, so and then last time we were here, we I gave you. Well, let's see. There's the verse: "Put sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, give an answer." That's the word apologia, the word apolog, That's where we get the word apologetic. It means to give an answer. It doesn't mean to to say, "Hey, gee, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian." Because I hope there's nobody in this room that's sorry for being a Christian. I, I really hope not. Uh, if, you, if you're sorry for being a Christian, come see me after we're done, and uh, we'll, we'll fix that, uh, or try to anyway. Um, but, uh, but the point is, apologetic, is to give a reason, as, Paul, as Peter said, give a reason for what? The, uh, for the, the reason of the hope that is in you. What is your hope? What, do you, what, do, what hope do you have about Christ, about being a Christian? And so to give an answer means uh, that's where we get the word apologetic. Uh, and then the last verse that I want to mention before we get moving is Philippians chapter one, verse seventeen. Philippians one seventeen says, "But other, of, but other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel." And Paul says in there, "And we're going to defend the gospel." And I know people like to argue and say, "Well, God doesn't need a defense," and that's true. God doesn't need a defense, but we need a defense. You and I need to be able to defend our position of what, why do we believe what we believe? Why are you here on Wednesday night? Why are you here on Sunday morning? Why do you read your Bible every day before you go to work? I'm assuming you do. Uh, why Why do you do that? Because you believe, right? You have a hope. And so uh, that's what Paul and Philip and Paul and Peter both talked about. Uh, and then I gave you a list last week. Um, this list right here, hopefully it's, uh, I didn't have them in exactly the right order last week. So I just want to kind of Give this back to you again. Uh, I don't think it's in the notes, but this is where we're going. So last week we had an introduction, and we taught. We did lesson two last week, so we're actually on lesson three today. But lesson number two was basically why do we believe anything? Not just about Christ or Christians or Bible, but why do we believe anything? You know, some people believe there's UFOs. Some people believe, uh, you know, that the the Democrats are going to win. Some people believe the Republicans are. Why do you believe anything? so we talked about belief, and then uh, tonight we're going to bounce off of that belief, and we'll do a little bit of a review here in just a moment. But we're going to talk about uh, lesson number uh, three, which is truth, knowledge, and faith. What is truth? What is knowledge? And how does that equate to your faith? And we'll, we're going to make that a link. And the reason we have to do this, we ha- I think it's important when I teach this, this subject, because we have to, we have to know why we believe what we believe. What is truth? How do we get knowledge? How do you and I acquire knowledge? And and what does that do for us when it comes to our faith? Because the world, the 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 um, atheistic world and the the uh, the uh, cynical world will challenge you about your faith, and they will make claims about your faith that is not true. And I want to give you some answers to be able to re- to direct them. And then we have next. Uh, it, Depending on how fast we get done tonight, we may start Lesson 4. We won't finish Lesson 4 tonight. That's a promise. We won't finish Lesson 4 tonight. We'll finish it up next week. But that's the proof. That's the first proof that we're actually going to talk about, the proof from cause. Proof of what? Proof of God. The proof of God from cause. I'll explain what that means when we get to that. And then from creation, Lesson 5. Lesson 6 is from design. Lesson 7 is from fine-tuning. Lesson 8 is about evolution and fossils. I just watched an interesting video on Facebook, YouTube uh, this, this afternoon uh, about where all the dinosaurs come from, or wh- why do we have so many dinosaurs, where they're, where they're found at. It's an interesting. I'm not really going to get into it, but it's just, there's, there's still a lot of questions about those kind of things. So fossils and, and uh, evolution, and then we're going to talk about man, the age of the earth, uh, morality, this is the biggest challenge that, that the world has against Christianity is morality, and then of course evil and suffering, that is the biggest, and then we'll t- finish up with the gospel, we'll talk about the, uh, the reality, the resurrection, and the royalty of Christ. And so that's kind of where we're going, so and you might remember that I gave you this little diagram yesterday, last week, about why do we have apologetics, and I want to put this in, in the context of a scripture verse, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, um, so, uh, before we get there, but why apologetics? And I gave you, we talked about this last week at, at length. Why apologetics? Firstly, is because it validates truth. I think that's what that says. Yeah. Validate Christian truth. Apologetics validates what you believe. It helps you to be able to explain why you believe what you believe. And it also ref- refutes error. And we talk about, um, there's a lot of people that, that say, well, this is what you believe, and that's, that's, that argument is sometimes referred to as a straw man argument. Well, they set up, this is what you believe, and then they try to knock it down. And so we deal with that kind of discussion in that in that session uh, about refuting error. And then strengthening the church, uh, uh, that's what apologetics does. It helps us to be stronger in our faith. Why do we believe what we believe? I know when I was a, first got saved, if somebody said to me, "Well, how do you, how can you prove that there is a God?" I would have had to say, "I, I don't know. I just believe," and that was not really a, sufa- a sufficient answer, actually. And so, but it, but it does knowing all of this information that we're going over the next several weeks strengthens the church. And then, lastly, not only does it strengthen, but it also saves the loss. Um, and uh, we talked about that at length as well. And so, so Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen. If you recall, that's a memory verse. It says, all, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so watch this, how it is laid out. So uh, validating truth, that's doctrine. When you The word doctrine simply means what is true and what is, what is being taught by God. Uh, and, um, refuting error is a reproof. That's the word reproof. That's what it means to correct errors in the church, in the believers, in the world. And then strengthen the church is correction. Um, I'm doing a study right now on um, uh, the book of Colossians in the real life class. And we we're talking about very that very thing about being able to be strengthened. And Paul's writing the letter to strengthen the church. And then lastly is instruction. Uh, saving the lost is, is about instructing the world on what is truth. So as we start the four, four reasons, and we started them... Uh, For giving in defense of our faith, we need to examine truth and be, and belief, and to qualify what our faith actually is. And that's kind of what I'm where I'm going. So this is more of a review. But why do we believe anything? Why do we believe anything? And I gave you a definition of belief. Beliefs are not simp- are simply not to be equated, um, not to be equated with truth, beliefs is to, or with truth or reality. Rather, they are to be conformed to truth, not just. Beliefs are equated to truth, but beliefs should conform to what truth is, so we get a good grip on what is truth. And uh, people think that their beliefs are true when they believe, when what they believe does not conform to truth. It's generally a non-biblical situation. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Most of the verses I'm going to go through should be in your handout, just kind of following along the notes. That's the way I, that was the way I hoped to make it done. It doesn't. Okay, well it doesn't. What of these days I'll get my notes to work the way I think about them. Anyway, first Thessalonians two thirteen, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not in the word of men, but as it in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh in you to believe. And so the church at Thessalonica, they began to believe, to receive, they received what Paul was teaching. Not as not as the word of man, but as the word of truth, the word of God, and uh, and they got saved and they, they lived their life accordingly, and uh, and so let me see where we're at here. That's First Thessalonians chapter two verse thirteen on the screen, and then uh, and then Ephesians chapter one verse thirteen. I started to read that earlier and didn't. In whom you also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom after that you believed, you were sealed. So this is the whole point about this is about being being a believer. So in Ephesians, gives us a progression through belief. We hear the truth, we believe what we hear, we trust in what we've heard, and all truth is based on evidence and facts. And that's kind of what we talk, talked about last week. So, so let's kind of get started. So the belief that we talk about, I don't, I'm not going to rehash a whole lot of that. That was as far as beliefs I'm going to go. I just needed to start there, launch into, what I want to talk about is truth. What is the reality of truth? And so truth, truth is both Uh, but the beginning and the end of all belief. Truth is the beginning and the end of all belief. Uh, It is by knowing the truth that we are made free. According to John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus Christ said, "And and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So in that statement, Jesus Christ is saying, you need to know the truth. Okay, so I'm not even talking about beliefs right now, but what we believe, we should believe truth, and then Jesus Christ says truth, when you, when you know what the truth is, when you have the truth, the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from sin, number one. Free from bondage, number two, of the, of the devil. Free, from, free to be able to, to live the way God wants you to live, all of those kind of things. And so uh, it's also by truth that we are able to measure the differing worldviews that are, that are held out there. There's a lot of worldviews out there. If you ever use that expression when I'm talking to somebody? Well, your worldview is different than my worldview. That may be an actual true statement. My worldview is different than your worldview. But how do I measure your worldview? I have to know what truth is. I have to know what truth is. Once I know what truth is, I can measure is your belief system, your worldview, whether it's, whether it's a Bible, religious, a religious worldview or not. If I, once I know it, and if I know truth and now I know what you believe, I can, I can relate those two and measure them. So if we're going to be able to declare, and this is what Christians do, right? We declare all the time we have the truth. Why? The church is the truth. The Bible is the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. We, say we, have, we declare we have the truth. So we better understand what the idea of truth really is. When we say we have something, what does it mean to have truth? It's a question that most people don't even really ponder. They just accept it because this is, I mean, this is the church. The church has got to be teaching the truth. Well, what is the truth? How would you know if your pastor is preaching correctly? Because you need to know truth. It is the truth. How do you know it's the truth? But How do you know what you're reading is true? That's my whole point. You have to know what truth is. So we'll get to that. I'm not trying to dis- disagree, but, just, but see, we can't just say we have the truth. We have to know what truth is? Okay, good, good, good illustration, Pam. Thank you. Okay, so we uh, we need to know what truth is, and we need to know what what it looks like. Now, Pam did a very true thing. What it did she's held up the Bible and said, "This is true," and it is true, because we say it's true. Why do we say it's true? Because we believe it. Why do we believe it? Because we have the knowledge. We get the knowledge. And ultimately, we get to our faith. Our faith holds that. So we got to build all of that up before we get to where Pam is at. And I hope everybody gets to where Pam is at, at some point in time, where you hold out the Bible and say, this is truth. All right, so not only do we uh, need to know what truth is and we need to know what it looks like, we also need to know when we have it. When do we have truth? You know, not every church has the truth. There's a problem with churches out there, and some churches, I'm not going to point a finger at any one particular, but there are, I do know that there are churches that don't have truth. I find it applicationally important, when I say applicationally important, I mean, it's important that we apply this concept about truth, And we need to understand what the guy by the name of Blaise Pascal said of truth. He had a, there's a quote here, um, he said, truth is so obscure, truth is so obscure, and uh, in these times, and falsehood is so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. There's a lot of false stuff going on out there in the world today. I'm not talking about the you know the shootings and stuff like. That. I mean just the way the world is. There's a lot of things out there that obscure what truth is, and there's a lot of falsehood out there, and it's established out there very deeply. And unless you you will not know it without understanding what truth is. So truth is a reminder of what Christ said in Matthew chapter. 22 verse 37 when he said thou shalt love the lord thy god with all thy heart with all thy soul and with all thy mind so consider this how would you define or describe truth if, if somebody says what is truth remember pilate said that to jesus christ just before he he committed him to the cross he says what is truth and then he didn't wait for the answer he just turned around and walked out of the room so how would you answer if somebody if somebody walked up to you and said you're a christian you think you have truth what is truth Jesus Christ is, but you got to explain more than that. you got to give more than that answer. You can't just give a one-word answer. you got to be able to say, what is truth? truth you, so that's a descriptive of, of Christ. He is truth. But what is, what is truth? Okay, the sun comes up on the, in the east every, sun, every morning, right? That's true. What is true? What is truth? But we're not even talking about Bible. We're not talking about Christ or anything. Just what is truth? Okay, so, so that's, fair. That's, a, that's pretty close to where I'm going to be going. So let, me get, let me go on down here a little bit further. Uh, so consider how you would define it. So, the, so let me just start with this. Truth is not just what is intended. Just because you intend something doesn't make it true. You, truth is not something that is intended. Intentions are easily manipulated, and int- intentions are easily manipulative. You and I get manipulated easily when somebody is intending to say this is true when it's not really true. Now, I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, not, I'm just I'm talking about the concept of truth. The, 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 what does it mean to be true? And so uh, it's, not, it's not something that we intend. Just because I intend for it to be true doesn't make it true. It's not my, I'll give you an example. It's not my intention to offend you when I say it looks like you could stop a train. It was not my intention to offend you when I said that, but everybody laughed, or most people did, because, well, hopefully you didn't get offended. Let me give you another one, if I have another one here. It was my intention to call you before I sold the house, but, sorry, Julie, I sold the house. It was my intention to call you, I just didn't. But Okay, so maybe I really didn't intend to call her. So intending to be honest doesn't make it so, doesn't make it true. If, int- if intentions dictate truth, then all, of, all error, let me just say it this way. If, if intentions dictate what is true, there can be no lies. Think about that. When somebody intentionally lies to you, they want you to think it's true. So if intentions define what is truth, then every lie is true. Therefore, there is no lies. You see how that works, okay? I want to be all on the same page there. The Scripture, as as many of you pointed out already, declares that God's word um, declares God's word to discern what is truth and what is not true. In Hebrew chapter four, verse twelve, Bible says, "For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder." of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So nothing, uh, let's see, where am I at here? I think I skipped this thing. Nothing is a lie, all is truth, So is, such is the lie of intention. That's what, That's where I want to wrap up. The second thing about truth, truth, truth is not pragmatic. And pragmatic is the view of truth claims that truth is what works. Truth is only what works. So many people uh, want to say, well, this works, so it's got to be true. A pragmatic truth claim is in reality simply saying that whatever works is true and right. It's an expedient way of knowing truth. And this is also a cause and effect view of truth. Lies work, but they're not truth. So so we can't just be pragmatic about what is true. I'm getting to actually the definition of truth here in just a moment. So just because it works doesn't make it truth. Old-fashioned lynch mobs operated pragmatically, and terrorists today do the same thing, and they call it truth. Okay. And the third thing is that truth is not what that which is relevant. A guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard, uh, a philosopher back three hundred years ago, insisted that truth is what is relevant to our existence. It is the. It is. He would call it subjective. He was a nineteenth-century Danish philosopher. A theologian and a critic, and he was considered the first existentialist philosopher. Ex- existence precedes the essence, is what he would say. He, he would say that we are, we are existing first without a predetermined nature, and only later do we construct our nature our, or our essence through our actions to be what is true. So we build on our true subjective, everybody's truth, everybody's life is true subjectively to you. And that's, and that's what he would claim. His truth, um, his truth has an existential bearing on life of the one who commits to it. And his definition of truth is self-defeating by its own definition. And this causes a lot of confusion with people, um, the nature um, of truth and the application of truth. Not all truths can fit into his definition. Okay, so like numbers are true. You ever think about numbers? Where do numbers come from? Numbers are true. They're, I mean, if you... I can't get into an explanation of that without taking a lot of time. But let me just say, let's go on. Um, so number number four, truth is not simply comprehensive. And this is the claim which explains the most, that most, this claim is that whatever explains mo, most of the, the situation is true. Whatever cl, explains the most is true. At best, this is the only a test for truth, not the definition of a test of, for truth. Then there's some other ones that I have here. Truth is not what is just understandable. Truth is not just what feels good. And truth is not just determined by majority. And you can see all of those things happening in our own, our own uh, culture today. Very obvious that people want to define truth as what they understand, what feels good, and what's, what the majority would say. Okay, so another question then would be, do we want truth? So we have this uh, this verse, John chapter eight, verse thirty-eight. It was the one I referenced a minute ago. Pilate asking Jesus, "What is truth?" And so this is this is where we're going to look at the word truth. And the word truth, the word truth in this verse is aletheia, and it it simply means. Turn my place here. In verse thirty-eight, it means unveiled reality. It means. Related to facts and pure from error. That was that's how truth is defined on those three things: unveiled reality, related to facts, and pure from error. So let me give you now and give you some real definitions. Truth conforms to reality, truth matches its object, truth reflects factually logical statements or actions, and truth is not self-contradictory contradictory truth can't contra- contradict itself truth cannot contradict itself truth has to conform to what is real i think that's what you were basically saying was it has to there's got to be some reality to it right the truth has to be real so what does truth look like let me give you a few things that is, would be a descriptive of truth truth is very narrow John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's a very narrow statement he's making, but it is a true statement. It's narrow but true. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, but straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and there are few that will be, be that will find it. So truth is narrow. Truth excludes the opposite. What is false cannot at the same time be true. What is false cannot be at the same time true. John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Truth is also changeless over time. Truth doesn't change. No matter when it is, whatever century it is, truth is truth. Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The truth never changes. Another description of that is, truth is immune to belief. You may believe something about a certain subject, topic, situation, but just because you believe one way doesn't make it true. Believing doesn't make it true, nor does not believing make it false. Truth is also unaffected by your Sincerity. A person can be sincere and still be wrong. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul writes that the one preached Christ of, cont- of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. And, uh, I don't know what number this one would be, but uh, truth is impervious to your desires. Wishing something were true or false does not make it true or false. You can't wish something to be true or false. First Timothy chapter one and verse seventeen, Paul says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be or be honor and glory forever and ever. And then the last one, as far as the definition or description, truth can be relative or the word propositional. Relative is not subjective. Relative does not mean subjective as Kierkegaard would say. Uh, truth sometimes, even though truth sometimes may be relative, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, many people dislike broccoli. I like broccoli. Does that make? it is that? That's a propositional type of a statement. I like broccoli. I like especially steamed. I don't like raw broccoli. Some people like to eat it raw. I don't. Um, This is the propositional statement as well, affirming reality for all humanity. All have come short of the glory of God. That's a propositional statement and it affirms the reality for everybody. So what I want to do right now is I want to show this little video. It's, uh, it's very short, and um, it's uh, several men answering the question or just talking about the issue of truth. You may know some of these men, but let me see if I hope it plays. It's just embedded in the slide. We don't have any audio. We'll let them answer the question. Could you, let me back it up. Ravi Zacharias is probably one of the greatest apologists in the world today. Oskina is a great author. R.C. Sproul, one of the great theologians of our time. We'll let them answer the question. The single most important question any human being can ask is the question, What is truth? One of the most basic questions of all is the question, what is truth? And and there have been battles over the answer to that throughout the ages. Of all the issues today, you could boil them down to half a dozen, but unquestionably, truth would be major. So to answer the question, what is truth? I would say it is this. Truth is that which affirms propositionally the nature of reality as it is, Truth is defined as that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. Because God's perception of reality is never distorted. It's a perfect perception of reality. So when Pilate looked at Jesus, and says, ah, what is truth, and walks away. Pilate walked away from the greatest authority on the greatest question and committed the greatest crime at that time. Okay, so that was kind of short, but you kind of hope you get the point about what, what, when we're talking about truth, what, what we're dealing with. So Ravi Zacharias says that truth is that which affirms propositionally the nature of reality as it is. Uh, so generally speaking, a statement is propositional because it makes a proposition about the world. It asserts a truth. And what, what Ravi is doing is asserting a truth as well. Saying something as simple as the sky is blue is a propositional statement. Uh, because the sky is blue. It's assuming a logical connection between the sky and the color blue. It propos- it's proposing the sky is blue. Not today because it's gray right now because it's cloudy. But on a nice bright sunny day, it is blue. That's a propositional statement. That, that's He's making uh, that truth is a, that which a, a, affirms propositionally the nature of reality. And then they also just went on. and I, This is how I would define uh, truth when it comes to the Bible to God is this statement here that you heard on this, on the video truth corresponds to reality as perceived by God and that first part right there is extremely important truth is what God sees truth corresponds to the reality as perceived by God because God's perception of reality is never distorted it is a perfect perception of what reality is you and me we struggle sometimes. Well, is that, am I seeing truth? Am I seeing what is really true? Did I see, did I, what I just saw, did that really happen? We, we kind of, in our mind, we challenge, we question, but God, God sees perfectly every single time and every single thing. And so when God sees it, he perceives it as true and, re, and real. And so there's, that's where I take the definition out of the Bible, out of the whole of the Bible, summed down into that one statement, what is What is true? corresponds to what God sees and what God determines is what is true. This truth is the basis for what we're going to explore next, which is, so we got, okay, so we went from believing last week to truth this morning or this evening so far, and now I want to talk about the role of knowledge. How does knowledge fit in all of that? How about acquiring knowledge? So we're right to declare that truth shapes our belief, but we can also declare that our belief is arrived at from an ascent to what we know to be true. Our beliefs basically, our beliefs should be based on what we know to be true. We know the Bible, as Pam pointed out, the Bible is, she says the Bible is true. That, that should form our knowledge and, and form our behaviors and our, how we live, right? Okay, so knowing knowledge then. Knowledge is an acquaintance with facts, truths, and principles as, as, from, a, as, as from a study or investigation. So when you're, when you're doing your own Bible study at home, you're trying to gain knowledge. You're studying the Bible to gain knowledge. I hope that's what you're doing. You're trying to gain knowledge. You're trying to understand the facts and the truths and the principles in that Bible study to get out of it what is true, what is in the Bible. You're trying to get out of it what's in it. That's called an exegesis, exit out. uh, This is a big fancy word that says to, to draw out of the text what is in there. And so in order to not get bogged down here, let me just share three parts of what is called the standard definition of knowledge. So, so for knowledge, the person believes that the statement to be true. So you have to believe that the statement is true or the circumstance or the situation, whatever the topic is at the moment. You have to believe that it's true, that then you'll gain knowledge. Uh, the statement is in fact true. Obviously, if it's a lie, then that's not a good thing that you're basing your belief on. And the person is justified in believing that the statement to be true. So this is kind of a, a, a standard definition of knowledge and what it is. It's what you believe, it's what is true, and it's what is justified. Uh, how we would say it. So the Bible, knowledge, the, the, the Bible defines knowledge two ways. First, in Mark chapter 6, verse 2, um, it's, it's defined as a mental excellence expressing an attitude or an action of the mind. It is basically translated as wisdom. Wisdom. Okay, so Mark chapter 6, verse verse 2, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him was astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? They're talking about Jesus, who's been speaking and teaching in the synagogue. And this is very early in his ministry. And they said, And what wisdom is this which he is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hand? What wisdoms, where did he get his knowledge, they're saying? Where did he get his knowledge? Where did he get all of these facts? So that's the first one. Secondly, is an understanding of the facts, having insight or discernment, as in possessing knowledge. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes, Doubtless and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, do count them but dung that I may win Christ." It's what, what you understand of the facts, and you have discernment about what's going on. So that's knowledge. So God desires for all mankind to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is what God wants. God wants you to have as much knowledge about the Bible and about him as you can possibly suck it up and absorb it and, and, and go after it. In First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, who will have all men to be saved. And so first off, he wants you saved. If you're not saved, you need to get saved. Secondly, he wants you to come, to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants for every person on the planet, first to get saved and second to come to the knowledge of the truth. And as we pointed out, the Bible, Jesus Christ, those are, those are truths. And so we need, to, we need to, to know them. The challenge with many people who reject God is found in denying what is really knowledge. People that want to reject God want to reject what is knowledge. Atheists, agnostics, and others reject the idea of knowledge, choosing instead to embrace that which could be considered what I would call false knowledge or false hope. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy about this in 2 Timothy 3.7. He, he said that they're ever learning and they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the problem with people that reject what the Bible says and reject what truth is from God's perspective is they basically never come to the knowledge of the truth because they're too busy rejecting the knowledge that God is trying to get to them, and they reject it. So when real knowledge is rejected, what fills the void is an idea of truth, but it does not fit the standard definition. Okay, so how do we actually acquire knowledge? There's There's four ways that knowledge comes to you. And I want to just mention those real quick. I'm not going to dig down into them real deep. But how do they come to you? W- ways of acquiring knowledge. So we go to school. We all go to school. We've all been to school uh, to gain knowledge, learn, learn your, your alphabet, and learn the multiplication tables, and learn how to write and penmanship and all that stuff. We learn from school. That's not what I'm talking about. Because even in school, there's four ways that they teach you, four ways that they do things to, to help you learn. So first one is, is uh, what's called empirical Empirical learning is a, a via, it comes through the senses, natural sciences and so on like that. Um, touching, tasting, measuring, that's empirical knowledge. Secondly, is uh, intuition and direct contact. That's subjective. Now, when I say that's a little bit different than empirical, because this is, I mean, everybody touches things. Maybe, in, maybe in the, you know, in, in your biology class, you know, you had to dissect a mouse. And everybody had to touch all the parts of the mouse. Did you guys do that? Frog. Oh, it's a frog. Okay, well, frog, mouse. same thing. (laughs) It was a frog, actually, none of you say that. But, you know, um, what you touch is empirical. What what I touch, subjective. I don't know. I'm not touching that. No, okay. And then uh, through reason alone, so this would be a rational learning. So it's like a thought process. Learn how to think. One of the things that schools, especially high schools, want to teach kids, or should, is how to critically think. That's rational think, that's rational learning. And then last one would be an authoritative learning, would be testimony. Nobody can deny your testimony of Christ, or, or of salvation. Nobody can say, no, that's not, you didn't really get saved. The way you just described it, that's not right. It, it didn't happen to me that way, so it couldn't happen to you that way. No, that's, that's testimony. Let me give you a word of caution though, real quick about seeking truth. There's two verses that are warning us about seeking truth. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And 2 Thessalonians 2 11, says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. So God says, okay, if you want to believe a lie, I'll send you a lie to believe. But let's talk about these four, I'm not going to get into a lot of depth on them, but let me talk to you about these four ways of knowing truth, or knowing knowledge. So there's what I would call the hard, hard-lined empirical view, which would, in other words, skeptical, skepticism. And this is the guy by the name of David Hume. He was history's biggest proponent of the empirical view of truth. So this is what he said, I've got to read it from the screen. If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school of metaphysics, so basically if we take a Bible, take a, a, a commentary, or take the Bible itself, we take it in our hands, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? And he says, no, it doesn't. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact or exist in existence. He would say no. Then he says, commit it to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. That's how he would say about the Bible. He said the Bible can't contain good information. There's no empirical data that you can get out of the Bible that would be true. So he's rejecting the Bible right away. And Of course, a lot of people still even reject the Bible because of what he had to say. Another guy by the name A.J. Sears, uh, Ayers, is, truth, is, a, is the truth claim a tautology? The word tautology simply means a needless repetition. You guys just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. So is the truth claim empirically verifiable? If not, then it's meaningless and emotive at best. It means it's just about a bunch of feelings. All, all God talk is meaningless, he says. So, so this is who we're, we're dealing with. Okay, so empirical evidence, then, is a source of knowledge acquired by means of observation and experimentation. <clears throat> and, but these two guys are saying you can't learn anything from the Bible by observation or experimentation. Empiricism is the philosophy of science emphasizing evidence as dis- discovered in experiments. And, okay, let me give you an example. I know when I was a, when I was a lost guy uh, in the military, and there was guys that wanted to try to witness to me. One of the first things that I would say was, show me God. I want to see God. I want, by evidential, empirical evidence, I want to see God. Of course, they couldn't produce him, so I said, God doesn't exist. That was how I treated the Christian at that time. <clears throat> Empirical evidence is information that justifies a belief. So if you, want to, if, you, if you believe what you believe about God, then show me God. Let me present him to me. Let me see him. I want to touch him. Um, and so um, it's a fundamental aspect of the scientific method, of course, to measure and to touch and to uh, do experiments on it. Um, it's a fundamental aspect of the scientific method that all hypotheses and theories must be tested against observations of the natural world. That is what science does: is they do experiments to test the observations to see, first off, is it consistent? Secondly, is it really true? And so on and so forth. Um, empiricism rests on this. Is a fancy word here? Uh, a priori, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, basically, that word means a, a priori is a knowledge or justification wholly dependent on observation, experience, or empirical evidence. In other words, this, it's a, it's, I'm telling you this word because you'll come across them at some point in time. If you go any further from this, this series, you will run into these words. Um, but it means dependent on observation. There's another word that we'll get to in a minute that's very similar to it. Okay, so a, uh, both Hume's and Ayer's statements are self-defeating, so they're saying, can you test it? Well, their experimentation model is invalid because they w- wrote the model in their mind to make to reject the truth. So if you already start off as an experiment saying, well, I'm going to get this result, and then you test, and then you get that result, you can't say that's true because that's that's an invalid truth. Their claim is this. This is what they say. We should only believe what science can prove. But here's the problem with that statement that's a philosophical statement. And you can't do science, you can't do an experiment on a philosophical statement. To say that you, so you got to go with the science, okay, let's go with the science. How do you test that statement? You got to go with the science. How do you test that? Scientists don't know how to test that because that's a, phys- that's a philosophical statement, it's a mental thought, it's not something measurable. Empiricism has limits for determining what truth is. Then there's set, the, the uh, subjective view we talked about. If I get it, there's a guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, he, he had this reoccurring theme on subjectivity, which has to do with the way people relate themselves to truth. He claimed subjectivity is truth and truth is subjectivity. So basically, whatever you're subject to is true, and whatever, you're, whatever is true is what you're subject to. That was, that's his position. And then uh, we got another guy by the name of, let me get to the other guy, Rene Descartes. Um, His view is that regards reason as the chief source and test of knowledge. What is reasonable? His criterion for for the truth is not sensory, but intellectual and deductive. And his claim is that reason is, or what is intellectual, has the test of uh, of knowledge. And so the, the rationalist, believes our arrival at knowledge is, now here's that other word, a priori, para, I wish I could say it correctly, priori, which is the use of logic, that everything is independent of sensory input. So the first one was it had to be sensory input, this one is is just ambiguous the knowledge. An example would be, this word this, this here, an example would be all husbands are married. That's a true statement, all husbands are married. It is true because the definition of, of a husband, without having experience meeting every husband, you know that that's true. But here's, here's another statement that doesn't go fit this way. All, all trucks are Fords. That's not a true statement. So to verify that as a, 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 a pastoria, you would have to experience every truck in the world to see if it's a Ford truck. You'd have to measure, you have to physically get an empirical, is every truck Ford? Or Chevy, or whatever choice you might have, okay, so the, so what does the Bible say? Because that's really what really matters. I mean these guys are but this is what the world is influenced by these men, these, these men and others, to, to to talk about knowledge, to talk about truth, to talk about what is right and what is acceptable, and so on. and, the, and they shape I mean these guys are two, three hundred years old, and they still shape how things are done today. Because their thought processes—all I mean—it's just an incredible, uh, amazing how things people still think the same way those guys think because that's how they were taught in school. Okay, but what does the Bible say as testimony and authority? John chapter nineteen, verse thirty-five, and this he saw, and he saw that it bare record, and the record is true, and he knoweth that he saith it true, that ye might believe. Okay, so the Bible—the Bible gives empirical. Subjective, rational, and authoritative knowledge as well. And this is where you you've got to. This this is why you can't throw out the Bible with the bathwater. You they try to do that. They try. I mean, well, David Hume said if it doesn't have all of this, just throw it out, burn it, commit it to the flames. Well, he doesn't know that the Bible has all of this. It has empirical knowledge. It has subjective truth. It has rational uh, truth. It has authoritative truth. Let me show you that. Okay, I don't know if you can read. Can you see that? Oh so. Empirical evidence in, verse, in Luke chapter 29, verse 39. I'm sorry, Luke 24, verse 39. It says, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. That was after his resurrection. Jesus Christ is saying, hey, just touch me. Here's the empirical truth. Put your hand, Thomas, put your hand in my side. That's empirical truth. I am who I'm claimed to be. All right, what about subjective? Subjective truth. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who have not the law, which have not the law, do not by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. It's what they're subject to. What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2 is that some people, Gentiles, lost people, not, not Jews, just the Gentile world, they have, when they have their own laws within themselves. And they follow their own laws within themselves. They're subject to their own laws. And then, rational. In Acts chapter 17, verse 2. We read this verse already, but let's read it again. Paul says, "Paul as and Paul, as was his manner, as his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So he reasoned. That's a rational conversation. He reasoned. That's Rene Descartes, rationality. And then the last one authoritative, authoritative evidence. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. what He did the, he did the miracles to prove who he was. And They're not written in, the, in, in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. The miracles that Jesus did after his resurrection, he did them so that you would believe who he is. He did it specifically for his disciples, but he, we're his disciples, so he did it for us as well. So the Bible is the foundation of Christian faith. So there's two revelations that I want to, want to introduce you to. Maybe you've heard of this before, maybe you haven't. But the first one is a general revelation. In, in Re, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, many of you are familiar with this verse. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made even His eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's general revelation, that you see God in His creation. That's what that verse is saying. So, uh, seeing God revealed in creation, that's what general revelation means. And then the next one about where, where does this biblical truth come from is what's called special revelation. Now, special revelation we find again in Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So that's called special revelation. And special revelation is the revelation of God that is mainly known from Scripture, which is His, enti- his um, inspired Word. So we'll go right back to Pam now. So that's where we get special revelation through the truth of the Word of God but we also get the revelation of God through his creation. You see it in his creation. Everything that he's created, you see God's hand on it in some way. Uh, we'll talk later in the next several weeks about how you can see the evidence of God's hand in those. That's, this is I'm still laying groundwork for once we get into those proofs. You need to understand all of this or at least have it as a foundation. So special revelation gives specifics regarding sin, Regarding salvation, regarding heaven, hell, the nature of God, the Trinity, the incarnation, death, and so on, the Bible gives the, explains all of that. It lays out all those truths. But the importance of general and special revelation is this: because general revelation is not sufficient for salvation, it's necessary for all Christians to participate in the Great Commission. See not everybody people can know that there is a god by the by the looking at the at creation but they, they don't know to get saved by the creation they need to get saved they get saved by the special revelation of the word of god so you need them both you need you need the, the general revelation of god and then the christians need to share the special revelation of god so people can get saved so the importance of the general and the special revelation is because re- general revelation is not sufficient you need you need special the Great Commission commands us to share the more specific and necessary doctrines of special revelation with, with those having only general revelation of sal- for salvation and faith. Yes, sir. Okay, let me see if I can re- so that everybody heard that or I can bring you to mic. Uh, so is special revelation only that which God allows us to know? Is that the question? No. Well, that part, when you added it through His Word, that's where it becomes an affirmative answer. You know, if we don't have the Bible... We won't know about things like salvation and sin, right? Because of because we don't have if, which is why we believe in this church to do what we can in an effort to get Bibles made to give them to people who don't have a Bible around the world. We make Bibles all the time as much as we can. Uh, we do we do what we can as God allows us to do because we want to put Bibles in the hands of people who don't have a Bible. So. Now, they, may, they, they see the general revelation of, of God revealed in creation. And, you know, every culture in the world has a God in their cultural explanation. Every one of them has a God. Every one of them has a creator of some sort where, the, where this, their, their world was created. But they haven't been given the special revelation of this is the real God and this is what God will, wants for you to be saved. To, be, to have eternal life. And when they get a Bible and they find out that information, people get saved. So that's that's the importance of having a Bible, is to have that special revelation. Yeah, that's a good question. Did I, did I cover it well enough for you? Okay, good. Okay, so where am I at? Okay, so before we get into the details of general and special revelation, we need to see, when, let's, let me just wrap all this up, and then we'll talk about faith. Uh, so recapping our introduction, so we started with belief last week, we talked about truth already this morning, this evening, and now we, are, we understand that truth is based on the reasonableness of the facts, and these facts, these facts will lead us to a living faith, and I'm going to emphasize the word living. Your faith is not a dead faith, your faith is not a blind faith, your faith is not a weak faith, your faith is, li- it, it ought to be a living faith and I used the word before, evidential faith. We have the opportunity to have an evidential faith, not like a tribe in some country and they're living you know, in, in the jungles and they don't. all they have is revelation, general revelation, but they don't have what God wants us to have, which is to have a faith in him. Okay, so let's talk about faith. How did we get to faith? Faith arises from reason. Let me just say, faith is not the, object, the opposite of facts, not the opposite of reason, it's not the opposite of evidence. Faith is based in facts, faith is based in reason. Remember, empirical, su- su- uh, subjective, uh, re- uh, rational, and authoritative in knowledge brings us to the facts and helps us to reason out what the truth of the evidence is so that we have a, fact, or a fact-based faith. The accusation of the atheists and the unbelievers that our faith is somehow a disconnected and distorted view of reality. The accusations sometimes go so far as to say that we are delusional. Remember, we—I we, think we read that with uh, um, what was the guy's name? that said that we're delusional. Was that Bill Maher? I don't think I think that one might have been him. But anyway, we talked. We we did just uh, give a quote. Oh, actually, Charles, it was uh, Dawkins that said that. The accusations go so far as to say that we're delusional. We talked about that in the first session. I not even have it in my notes here. It was the title of Dawson's latest book, The Delusion, God Delusion. That was his title. Okay, let me give you some quotes. Richard Dawkins, he says, Faith is the, is the, is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. I would completely disagree with that statement. Faith is based on on everything that he's based in his his atheistic view on, all the evidence. I I choose the same evidence, and I have faith. And we'll see all of that in those proofs that we're going to go through over the next several weeks. Frederick Nietzsche, he says, When faith is thus exalted above everything else, it necessarily follows that reason, knowledge, and patient inquiry have to be discredited. The road to truth becomes a forbidden road. Faith means not wanting to know what is true. I mean, These are the guys that influenced almost all of our worldly, almost all the whole world population were influenced by these kind of guys. Reverend Zacharias, this is what he said again about faith. I believe in my heart. What I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. Um, Yeah. I'll go with I know where I know where he's going, but it's a it's kind of a weird statement. Because my faith isn't in my heart, my faith is in my mind, and my heart believes because of my faith in my mind. Okay, so anyway, one more. Bible. What's a Yeah. It may maybe be. That's why I'm not, I'm not sure exactly where he's coming from because I didn't hear the whole thing. I didn't read the whole quote. Uh Okay. What's a, what about? Uh, let's see. Where am I going here? Start here. I should have had another another slide here, but I'll read Thomas Aquinas's statement here. He says, "Faith signifies the assent of the intellect to that which is believed." Now, it is, it, if this is accompanied by doubt and fear of the opposite, there will be opinion. While if there is certainty and no fear of the other side, there will be faith. So. Interesting statement as well. I don't know where that is in my notes, but anyway, got my slides out of order again. Okay, so the Bible does say in Hebrews chapter eleven verse one, when most everybody's familiar with. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So those two words point to something that we can call evidence and a proof of our of our belief. So biblical faith. Um, let's break down this 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 verse in Hebrews chapter eleven, verse or verse one. The word faith, the word faith is the word pistis, the the Greek word pistis, and that word simply means the state of believing on the basis of reliability of truth. So your faith is based on the reliability of the of the of truth, and faith is based on trust, confidence, reliability, and um, can't read that last word. Fidelity. Now, there's another Greek word. If if you know anything about Greek, and I'm not, I, I know Strong's. That's all I know. But another Greek word for faith is is the word nomizo, which means believing something because your family believed it. You know how sometimes you just believe, you know, because that's the way your family taught you when you were growing up. That's not this word. And this and this word or the word nomizo is not even used in the Bible any place at all. So pistis is the only Greek word used for faith in the Bible. And the atheistic view concept of blind faith or faith without any reason or evidence is foreign to the New Testament. The Bible doesn't even go there. So let me just show you some verses here. We'll finish up this lesson. Um, so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. Well, he wrote the whole letter to First Corinthians, but in chapter fifteen, verses one to four, I'm gonna turn there because I can't read the whole screen. but first Corinthians fifteen, Paul makes a good a powerful statement, okay. So I want to read the whole thing, and then I'll go back and explain whenever I'm going. So moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which is also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, in that ye keep in memory, if, in, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I have delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures." And we'll just stop right there, verse 4. So verses, verse 1, he declares, to, he makes a declaration statement. That's actually, in fact, I have it there, a subjective statement. He's making a subjective statement. And in verses 2 and 3, uh, he talked about Christ dying on the cross. That's an empirical statement. We know Christ died on the cross. We know he died on the cross. Because the people witnessed him die. They saw it. That was an empirical measurement. They saw him dying on the cross. In fact, they stuck him with a spear to verify that he was dead. That's empirical. And in verse four, it says that Christ was buried and rose again. Now, that's a rational statement, very, very uh, uh, rational statement. And then, and then in uh, twice in verses three and four, he said it was it was it was according to the scripture. That's an authoritative statement. I don't think that fault. Yeah, there, there it is. Paul's conclusion in verses 3 and 4, according to the scriptures, an authoritative statement. So I point out that, that in each one of these, we don't have blind faith because Paul used empirical and, and subjective and rational and authoritative knowledge that he had, that he possessed, and he wrote out this passage so that you could now have that same empirical knowledge and evidence and, and um, rational authoritative knowledge. Paul not only gave the gospel this is the cool thing about what, this, what Paul did also in this passage here. Not only did he give the gospel, but he also gave the, 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 the deceivers, the uh, atheists and agnostics, he gave, them a, he gave them the test for validating the truth of faith. Paul's letter to the, to the Corinthian church gives the most obvious, obvious clue as to how to refute Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 to 19, For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which fallen asleep in Christ are perished in this life only. We have hope in Christ. We are all men most miserable. What Paul is saying is, if you could disprove Christ's resurrection from the dead, then all of this stuff is a waste of our time. If Christ didn't die and didn't get buried and didn't resurrect three days later and ascend to heaven, then, we're, then we're, if that didn't happen, Paul says, if that didn't happen, then, then, our, then we're, we're dead in our sins. We're yet in our sins, and, we, and we, we have nothing. We're going to perish, and our only hope is in this life. We have no hope of, a, of, a, of eternal life. So that's an important part of all of this. He simply states that none of this is true if Christ be not raised from the dead. So let me give you a couple of concluding things, and then we'll finish up. i got about 15 minutes, so maybe I'll jump into Lesson 4 just to whet everybody's appetite on, on this, the, the subject of design. So as we, as we conclude here, I want to I point out uh, that the Bible is a thinking person's book because it challenges man's intellect, and God has clearly shown that man intentionally misses the point of reality and existence of God the atheist and the agnostic, and so on. Therefore, we can only conclude that the Bible is this, and I've got six or five statements about the Bible. Uh, it is logically consistent. It has no contradictory teaching. Um, it does have a rationalistic uh, tone to it in some cases, but it does not omit revelation. It is empirically verifiable. It's grounded in space, time, and history. And reasonable to hold, given the intrinsic nature of the world around us. So what that says is the Bible is verifiable because it is. It does. It's got a historical concept to it. It's got a place, a a geographic location to it, and 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 all of those things can be verified. Number three is existentially relevant. No other system adequately explains our world as it exists. And provides objective grounds for moral for morality and other things. So basically, what that statement is saying is that the Bible exists existentially exists, and it's only it's the only system that explains the world that we live in. Nothing else can explain why the world is as crazy as it is than the Bible. The Bible can only the Bible is the only worldview that gives. A, an adequate reason for why the world is as messed up as it is. Nothing else does that. That's what that, verse, that's what that statement is talking about. Next is that it's a life-changing and personal. The Bible is life-changing and personal. It alters human character and carries with it the internal witness of God's Holy Spirit. So you know as well as I do that when you got saved, you got changed. It changed your life. And then the last thing is it's trustworthy in testimony. It supplies strong reasons for believing those who testify of its truth. It is a trustworthy book, so people can people like uh, uh, well, all those guys that we quoted, you know, they they may want to try to say that the Bible is is just something that should be burned. They don't. They messed it out. Even their own process of doing knowledge is biblically appropriate, and the Bible does that as well. And we've talked about that. So. Um, let's uh, I'm going to use up to the last 15 minutes just to talk about, um, God in the lesson, lesson number four. So we won't get very far. Flip over to the, you got the next PowerPoint. Okay. So this is lesson number four and we'll finish this up next week. Okay. So God, let's talk about God. Why God? How do we know that there is a God? And so on, um, Let's describe God. Defining who and what God can be, defining who and what God is can be very difficult because God is by nature completely different from what you are. Therefore, when we, when we can only describe God by analogy and cite his attributes as revealed to us in the Bible. That's the only way we would know who God is. If it wasn't for a Bible, we would never know who God is. That's that special revelation uh, concept that we talked about. His attributes, including holiness, omniscience, omni, omni, you might not have heard this one, omnipotence, omnipotence, omnipresence, logicalness, righteousness, justice, merciful, gracious, and so on—all of those are his attributes, and that's how we would describe God. He is revealed to us in his creation (general revelation). He's revealed to us in the pages of the Bible (special revelation), and he's in, in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's look, at the, let's look at Ephesians, or Exodus 3.14. Now, you're all familiar with this, or you should be. God said Let unto Moses, Moses, he's telling Moses, I need you to go back to Egypt and bring out my people. Well, and Moses says, well, who do I say you are? He said, tell them I am that I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. So when Moses met with God in the burning bush, he asked the same question that has been asked millions of times. He wanted to know well, who God is. Who is God? God answered with the of eternal, with the weight of eternity in the answer. He says, "I am that I am." So it simply means this: what God means is He is the self-existent One that reveals Himself. That's who God is. He is the self-existent One that reveals Himself. That's what. That's what he, when He told Moses to tell them. Who, who who sent me? Tell them that I sent you, the one that I'm revealing myself to Israel now. I am revealing myself. I reveal myself to you in the burning bush. Now I'm going to reveal myself to to Israel in the miracles uh, and bring out, bring out all the people from Israel or from uh, Egypt. I'm sorry. And so the second phase of the root of the debate, because non believers have no problem with self with the with the eternal self existing universe, but they don't believe that God who revealed himself, can possibly exist. So a lot of people will say, well, the universe, self-existing, it's always been here. The universe has always been here. But they can't go to so far as to say, God, is, is, God has always been here. He's just always been. They don't want to go that far. Why not? I don't know. Well, because they're scared, I guess. Too often, the challenge from the unbelieving world is to show me the evidence Yet God has done that over and over again. He has shown evidence of his reality. That's what he did to the Pharaoh in in the book of Exodus. He gave them 10 10 plagues, 10 10 examples of I am God. I am God. They didn't believe him. So he has revealed himself over and over again. Let me just give you some things. that he's, He's revealed himself indeed. In creation, in salvation, in sacrifice, in resurrection, in morality, in grace, in love. Literally in every aspect of life and living, he has revealed himself. There's nothing that is nothing about your life that you can't find God in there somehow. Every one of us. Okay, so God is the only supreme being that there is. There is no other supreme being. He is the God above all gods. Uh, eternally, he's eternally self-aware. God never gains knowledge. He never, you know, he, he never gains knowledge. He has all the knowledge that could ever be possessed. He has it all. All that there is is summed up in God. For all all of all of everything flows out from God. All knowledge flows out from him. That includes life, goodness and grace and mercy as well as condemnation, judgment and rule. Everything comes out of God. God has no beginning. And he has no end. That's where we get the idea of eternal. No beginning, no end. The definition of eternal means without beginning or end. That's what eternal means, without beginning or without end. In Pro- or Psalms chapter 41 and verse 13, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Okay, another definition or description of God is that he is, he is not content, uh, not contingent. God is non-contingent upon He doesn't he, He's not resting on anything else for His existence. I'll explain contingent here in just a few, in a little bit. Uh, but to be contingent basically means to be reliant upon some external source for keeping you alive. God is not contingent on any source for His knowledge or His power or His authority. Jesus Christ said at the end of Matthew that all authority is given for him from God, the Father. Jesus is God, hence all authority is in himself. Next one is that God is transparent or transcendent. To be transcendent is to be outside of something. He transcends the universe. He transcends all matter. God is not inside the universe. He's outside. He's inside, but he's also outside. God transcends the universe. He created it. He cannot be, by definition, cannot be inside the universe if he created the universe, he has to be outside of the universe because uh, to be inside the universe and to try to create it is it, not logically possible. Next is he—he uh, he is the creator of all things. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 24: "Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and He that formed thee from the womb: I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone." that that spreadeth abroad the earth by, by myself. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17, it says, He is before all things, and by him all things consist. In John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him there is nothing made, there is not anything made that was made. He alone is the only God. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 21, Tell me and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else besides me there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And then later on in Isaiah forty six verse nine, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. There has never been any gods before him, nor will there be any gods after him. God is a God from all eternity. And so from this short list that we just kind of went through, we see attributes of God, we can offer a definition of God. So we see that God is eternal, he's transcendent, he's the creator. So the best definition ever given uh, in hundreds of years is by St. Anselm, the Bishop of Canterbury, about 1200 uh, AD. He said this, God is, by definition, the greatest conceivable being there, and therefore the highest good. That was how he defined God. So God is the best explanation of why anything exists. God is the best explanation for the origin of the universe. God is the best explanation for what I call fine-tuning, which we'll get into some examples of fine-tuning, probably not today, but next week. God is the best explanation for a, for objective morals and duties. So this is where God comes from. Okay, so the most important question of all, does God actually exist? And... uh uh, Gottfried Leibniz, the German mathematician who co-invented calculus, thank him for calculus, gives us a wonderful starting point of our search of the answer of whether God exists or not and the proof of God. He said, "Why is he asked this question, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there stuff rather than no stuff? That was his question. The depth of that question is really the ultimate end of many questions that have plagued man for centuries. It is the ultimate why question, you know, like the why am I here, uh, why was I born, why will I die, and so on, all find the answer in the same place as his question, why. So his argument can be written in five statements. So this is a proof, this, this would be a statement of proof for co- what I call, or what is called the word, the proof of cause. There's three premises and there's two conclusions. First, If the universe has an explanation, well, first off, everything that exists has an explanation for its existence. That's the first premise. Everything that exists has an explanation for its existence. Secondly, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Third, oh, wow, the universe actually does exist. So that's a a, 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 a statement of premise. And then we have two... Two statements of conclusion based on those three statements. First, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Secondly, therefore, the explanation of the universe of its existence is in God. The universe came from God. That's what we're trying to get to. So three, three premises and two, conc- two conclusions. Everything that exists has an explanation for its existence. The universe has an explanation of its existence, and that explanation is God. The universe does exist. Therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Therefore, the explanation of the universe is God. So before we start examining this proof for God, we need to clear up a few things, and then we'll probably end here before we get into it because of the time. Um, First, a thing can exist. A thing can exist whether we know it or not. Right, I mean, you don't you don't know everything. I don't know everything, but there's stuff out there that I don't know. So we know it exists. Uh, secondly, there is the question of whether we know it exists. So although a thing can exist without our knowing it, we cannot know it exists unless it exists. Now, is that a twist on words? Think about that. You can't. Okay, you you cannot know everything that exists, but if it exists, you know you can know it but the only way that you can know it is if it actually truly really does exist. You can't know something that doesn't exist. The only way you can know if it exists is if you if it exists. Okay, I'm looking around making sure I'm making sense and everybody's not their head not catching on fire or anything. Because some of this some of these things can really twist you around. Okay, that's the second thing. Third thing is do we do we have a reason for our knowledge? I think we do um fourth there is a question of whether this reason is reason is so let me the question is this is reason a proof that something exists most of the reasons that we give for why we believe amount to probabilities not proofs it is more probable than than not that god does exist and then the last uh thing if there is a proof, it is a, is it a scientific proof, a proof by experiment, observation, or measurement? Philosophical proofs can be good proofs, but they cannot be scientific proofs. So we can answer yes to the first four. If you can see them up there. We, yes, those are all true statements. We can prove those. Um, we can answer yes to the first four of these questions about the existence of God, but not to the fifth one because we cannot empirically observe and measure God directly. We can't we so is is there a scientific proof or proof by experiment of observation measurement that God exists we don't know we can't i mean we can't measure god we 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 don't have access to him with a with a laboratory, so we can't do that one, but God does exist, and we can know that we can give reasons and those reasons draw us to proof even if it's not a hundred percent scientific proof but here's the point we're just looking at one proof right tonight and next week, but I've got. Uh, eight or nine more so you take, the, take the whole nine or ten proofs put them all together now you have, a, you have a court case you can go to court on ten proofs that you're guilty or you're innocent right so you don't just need one proof you, in this case we got ten of them so yeah, I really want to go through this <laughs> this will take a long time okay let me just tell you this and we won't go we won't go very far proof of the proof of cause so leibniz's question raises the raises the quest, his his premise raises the question does the universe have a cause and that's where we'll go next week we'll break down what does that mean what do i mean by cause cuz the idea of cause is a, is a, it's a big argument for people that, that want to reject the idea of god the possibility of God being real and so on you know um, who well we'll get we'll get into it next week I, don't, I keep talking I'm going to keep going I'll be at the end of this be 10 o'clock all right any questions on anything okay well hopefully uh, the, the the notes next week will be in better shape you won't have to change them again but um we're going to explore cause uh, next week and then it'll twist you it'll twist you around a little bit because it twists me around just trying to explain it so no questions let's go ahead and pray we'll be dismissed thank you for being